Welcome back to this week's edition of the Mintcast, the official podcast of Mint Press News. I am Whitney Webb, and joining myself and co-host Alan McLeod today is investigative journalist and author Yasha Levine. Yasha has written for outlets such as Wired, Slate, The Nation, and Time Magazine, and was also editor of the Moscow-based English-language satirical news site The Exile, and was also a contributor to Pando. Today we will be discussing his most recent book, Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet, which was released in 2018, but a year later is still as relevant and and important as ever. We will also touch on Yasha's recent articles on Russiagate and how it has created a wave of racist xenophobia in the U.S. that has been widely overlooked. Welcome to the program, Yasha. Uh, Thanks for having me on. So, Yasha, it's Alan here. You start off your book with a claim that would probably shock a lot of people who generally believe the Internet has been a liberatory tool. You start in the 1960s and claim that computers and the Internet were developed as a response to the growing radicalism uh, of the era and were designed as a way of trying to preempt democratic uprisings and keep a lid on social discontent. Uh, This idea that the Internet was designed by the government to be a weapon uh, of elite social control from the very start was pretty much completely new to me. Could you explain it? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of what my book does is actually um, recover a lot of old history that has been forgotten. Um, it doesn't really you know, try to write new history, but 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 recovers the stuff that was known to people uh, and apparent to people um, in the 1960s and early 1970s when the Internet was first being created. Um and so, you know, um, one one um, example that I'd like to go to is a, is a protest in, at MIT and, and Harvard uh, in 1969 that was specifically against the ARPANET. So the ARPANET is this, um, um, the, the kind of the first version of the Internet. That was the military network um, created by ARPA, the Advanced Research Project Agency. We now call it as DARPA. It's sort of this um, lab um, to create advanced weapons for the Pentagon, and, it, and you know, uh, ARPA created the Internet technology that we all use today, and it was deployed at first as the ARPANET. It was a military network, uh, connected all these different um, sort of military think tanks, uh, universities that were doing military research and doing computer science research, and um, it went online in 1969, and that same year, um, students at MIT and Harvard were protesting it already, and were calling it um, a technology of... Uh, sort of people manipulation, and we're calling it a technology of, of political control um, that was designed to um, to target left-wing and radical movements in America, but also around the world. Um, they they saw this technology as something that was that was um, not designed to liberate people. That like it was the furthest thing from their mind. They couldn't even imagine someone talking about computers and computer networks as to, as as, a, as tools of liberation. Um, they saw them as tools of control uh, and, and, and you know, specifically sort of American political control. Okay, so spe- speaking of ARPANET then, uh, do you think the privatization, I guess, of ARPANET that sort of happened in the 1990s that sort of moved it from this government project or Pentagon project to, to you know, sort of like this uh, th- this mix of private companies and Internet service providers and all that that we, that we really have today, uh, do you think that privatization was necessary for the Internet uh, to sort of become uh, as widely used as it is today, but still remain as a surveillance and counterinsurgency, you know, weapon, so to speak, that the people in the U.S. military that created ARPANET had long envisioned? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, uh, I guess it, probably, yes, I, I imagine that, you know, with the current way that sort of American, um, econo- the America's economic system and sort of research and development system is set up, you know, um, privatization usually happens when a technology sort of reaches um, a stage that can be marketed that could be that could be that could be uh, marketed for consumers or could that, that, that where companies could make money off of the technology right um, it's usually spun off and the internet you know went in kind of two different ways um, but then these ways kind of never really parted or it seemed like it went to two different ways but then they never really parted so the internet um, was sort of developed in 19 early 1970s and then it was Basically, almost immediately, when, it was, when the proof of concept was uh, shown to work, that you could create this sort of decentralized network, that you could that it could link all these different computers um, in the U.S. government in the Pentagon, that you didn't have to have you know build these sort of um, specific networks for specific purposes, but you could have a general use network that could connect any computer and l- allow them to talk to each other. That was the sort of the big breakthrough 
that the internet made. Um, and so, um, and so, um, and it, that, so the internet was immediately absorbed into op- operational networks of the Pentagon, of the NSA, of, of all these different uh, Pentagon uh, um, sort of communications networks, right? Uh, at the same time, it was kind of started going commercial, right? And it was uh, more and more companies were providing uh, internet services, uh, early type of internet services to um, to universities, to corporations that wanted this kind of kind of connectivity as well. And you know, as that became more ubiquitous and merged with sort of the, the personal computer revolution that made you know personal computers cheap and accessible to um, just just about anybody, right? The internet really started to go like global, and that that really started happening in the '90s and the early 2000s. Um, and while these two internets seemed like they were diverging, the sort of the military internet and this privatized, um, you know, commercial internet, they actually had never really diverged because the way that the ARPANET technology and the internet technology works is that it allows any network that speaks the same kind of language, right, to connect with each other. And so the two things were always there together, right? Even though they were kind of logistically separate, they could always interconnect, and the two things could always interconnect. And so, um, and so, you know, to, to go back to your question, was the privatization, um, you know, necessary to, to help you know, make the Internet uh, the sort of the surveillance network, you see, ubiquitous surveillance network, um, yeah, probably because you really needed to have people use it, and you know, on a mass level, right? Uh, if people didn't really use this network, it couldn't really be, it can't really be used for surveillance purposes or for, or, for, or to keep them. Um, and so, the more that the internet became commercial, and the more widely it was used by people, right? The more effective of a, as, as it became as a surveillance technology, because it wasn't just something that allowed you know, the government to transfer data between you know, data centers, right, and connect things together within the, within the government. But the, the Internet became, in, a, in essence, a tool that collected the intelligence, right, that, that sort of self-monitored, that people did stuff on the Internet, like, you know, like we're doing now, we're talking on a podcast over the Internet. People do date on the Internet. People, right, they buy stuff on the Internet. They organize politically over the Internet. They do everything on the Internet these days, right, and, you know, have pockets, you know, in their pockets, phones connected to the internet. So the internet became ubiquitous, and the more ubiquitous it became, the more, the more uh, effective as, uh, and useful as a surveillance as technology it became, right? Um, because back in the early days when the internet was being developed, you still had to gather the intelligence externally to the network, right? And you had to input the information into the network. So the, the ARPANET, uh, the early internet, was used to, to spy on Americans like going back to the early uh, 1970s. Uh, and But it wasn't used to collect information. It was used to input the information and to transfer it and share it between intelligence agencies and to, you know, compile dossiers and all things like that. But the information, let's say, on, on, on anti-war protesters, on civil rights uh, uh, activists, had to collect it externally by, you know, by human agents out in the field infiltrating, uh, collecting data and then inputting into the system um, that's sort of the old way, but as the system went commercial and penetrated every part of our life, um, that surveillance became kind of built into the system, right? You didn't need to input it anymore. It, it just collected it automatically. Mm-hmm. Talking about surveillance, you really seem to have a, a real problem with Google, Yasha. Aren't they just <laughs> friendly, cool guys in California offering us free services? I mean, their motto until recently, I know it was, don't be evil. I mean, you seem to be claiming that this was never an accurate representation of what they were about. Aren't huge companies, monopolies like Google and Facebook our friends in the end? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'm the only one who has a problem with Google these days. Um, I think everyone is hating on Google and hating on Facebook, or a lot of people are, um, for all sorts of reasons, including people who are blaming you know, these companies for basically electing Donald Trump. Um, look, I mean, uh, you know... I don't think that Sergey Brin and Larry Page, the co-founders of Google, you know, who met in Stanford and were these kind of smart engineering kids and math kids, I mean, I don't think they set out to create a surveillance, um, a for-profit surveillance monopoly, you know, um, that they didn't set out to create this 
giant company that's totally integrated with the U.S. national security state. I don't think that was their goal. Um, they were just out, you know, two engineering kids who wanted to make something cool, who were looking for a PhD project and wanted to make money uh, when they graduated, right? And so by just by, by the nature of the sort of the courses that their research took and, and, and the structure of Stanford and the programs that were available at the time and the, pro- and the problems that existed for engineering and, and, and um, computer science kids like them um, that existed to be solved by people like them, you know, at the time, sort of, you know, led them into that direction. Um, you know, a lot of it is kind of accidental and just um, um, happens happen chance, right? It does, it's not like a preordained, there's no conspiracy here. Um, to create this thing. And so, you know, but, but just the structure of the way that um, government-funded research into computer science and the way and the structural forces of um, the American economy and the American markets and, and Wall Street, right, uh, uh, the, the, the way that they work together basically produced this, this ab- abomination. Um, and, it, you know, Google is not the only one. Facebook is, is right there with it. You know, you have companies like eBay that rarely get a mention. Amazon is there as well, right? Uh, so is Twitter. So any of these companies, right, they, they are, they, they came out of different places. They, they were driven by different, the, the people who founded them had different goals in mind, right? But ultimately, they all kind of, as they became big and, and became ubiquitous and everyone started using them, they ultimately merged with the national security state or became much more, um, uh, became, went into much closer partnership with, with the national security state and um, ultimately made most of their money or a lot of their money, depending on the company that we're talking about, through surveillance, through for-profit surveillance, through watching users, through pre- trying to predict what they're going to do, uh, through amassing huge databases on user behavior and profiling people. So, you know, Google is, is a huge company. It's an extremely uh, influential company. It really changed the market in a way for the Internet because it was the first one to introduce a new kind of business model for the for for the internet for the internet um and business model that was based on um you know trying to predict what people are going to do on the internet what people what people are thinking about so to maximize um the probability that they click on an ad uh and the, you know they pioneered that and, the, and the part, a big part of that was to actually try to watch what people do online to build predictive models of user behavior so that you can you know know as close as possible to what they're thinking about while they're, you know, searching or browsing the internet so you can show them the relevant ad at the relevant time to, you know, maximize the probability that they'll click on that link and make that 10 cents for uh, Sergey Brin, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that model was, you know, adopted by Facebook, by Facebook, was adopted by pretty much everybody. And they, they pioneered that on, 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 and showed that that could make real money, uh, you know, combined with a monopoly position in, in the ad business or a near monopoly position, you know, you could really start to make a lot of money by um, merging um, predictive surveillance technology uh, with advertising. And so that's what they did, and that's kind of the world that we live in commercially. And, of course, that technology very, very well pairs with this sort of counterinsurgency, you know, fever dreams of the U.S. national security state that wants to um, predict and, and prevent any kind of political or social upheaval. Uh, with the help of the internet, right? So, or to cause it, or to cause it sometimes, right? Depending on where, which, which region of the world we're talking about, right? That's true. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. on your last point there, um, uh, 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 something you touch on in your book is about how a lot of these these big Silicon Valley companies, including Google and Facebook, um, have been involved in the creation of pre-crime or predictive policing software, as sort of a, a rather disturbing extension of their predictive ad uh, algorithms and all of that. So, why do you think these um, these companies have become so interested in, in this type of uh, you know crime, pre-crime sort of Orwellian uh, software? Mm. And what do you think that says about how how they really operate um, you know today? Yeah, well, you know, it's like, look, I mean. If we go back a little bit, um, you know, the, the whole origin of computer technology, right, even, even if we go to the Internet, so like to the 1950s, um, when uh, America basically was freaking out about being um, bombed, uh, you know, basically being attacked with a nuclear bomb by the Soviet Union. So after the Soviet Union developed a nuclear bomb, you know, it was the, the birth of this Cold War, right, where you had these two powers 
basically able to annihilate each other. Um, and there was no ICBMs that were invented yet, but but you had to deliver it with an airplane, right? So America was really worried about, you know, there was an increasing number of airplanes in the sky at the time. And it's like, well, how can we find and track, and um, you know, an enemy bombing uh, squad, right? What if they try to mob us with like a swarm of airplanes? How, how can we keep track of this? You know, the, the sort of there were primitive radar installations that were done by hand, and you you had to track these you know planes by hand, right, on a on a big kind of uh, transparent <coughs> uh, dry eraser board. But it was so you could track airplanes, you know, a little bit, but it wouldn't be enough to 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 recognize that an attack is happening, you know, and to and to recognize it early enough that you could actually intercept it, you know, you can send you know fire missiles at it or intercept it with enemy aircraft. And so the big worry in the 19, in the early 1950s was that how do we build a system that can predict an attack, you know, can identify if if these are hostile aircraft and it can predict where they're going to go and where they're going, and so that we can intercept the threat before they reach you know, American soil, right, and can drop the nuclear bomb. And so that led to this huge effort um, that resulted in the first um, nationwide computerized uh, early warning radar system. It was called SAGE at the time, and basically it's sort of what, what you know, what people call NORAD now is, is kind of the modern version of that. But that initiative w- w- developed the first real-time computer Computers that could process uh, information in real time. They weren't like calculators that you fed stuff into, but could actually process information in real time like we're used to computers doing today. And it also spawned all this sort of new computer technology that we take for granted now, which is like a, basically a computer workstation with a screen that shows information and like this primitive mice that you could sort of point at the screen and like they will open up menus. So it, it created this real-time computer uh, system that was connected to these arrays, uh, radar arrays that were far away, that were surveilling the world, right, surveilling this airspace, sending that information to these giant mainframes, um, sending that information in real time to a, to a workstation, right, where an analyst was sitting and watching the sky, right? And if something, if they saw something, you know, was fishy, they'd, they'd try to figure out what's going on and they'd scramble jets to intercept them, right? So it was a, it was that system, in a way, was the inspiration for the Internet because it, it showed that you could create a, a national network of computers that could watch the world in real time and um, abstract the real world like an airplane flying somewhere and carrying a bomb to a piece of information on a screen that an analyst could easily interact with and could make a decision based on that uh, information very quickly, right? Um and so the idea was that how, why, why can't we do that for everything? You know, not just airplanes, but why can't we do that for political movements? Why can't we do that for the weather even, you know? Why can't we do that for um, markets? Why can't we do that for battlefields, not just in the sky but on the ground, um, in, let's say in the jungles of Vietnam? Um, why can't we take build these sort of real-time... Um, Computer systems that watch the world, that sit over over the world, on top of the world, watch the world, and can predict attacks, can predict conflicts, can predict troop movements, and you know, and but also watched it in real time. So, so you know, prediction and um, sort of uh, an attempt to um, head off crime or attacks or whatever, right, to, before they happen, is sort of built in. To the modern, I don't know, like just the ideology, I guess, or, or the philosophy, or the, just the, the 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 way that computers are designed and and thought about, right? It's all about monitoring the world and getting information so you can do something with that information. Um, and, and but it's all it's very much tied to prediction, and so it's not surprising that you have Google um, closely partnering with a company like Predpol which is a policing <coughs> company out here in California um, that aims at sort of predicting future crime um, and sort of figuring out where in a city uh, the cr- crime will happen next and then basically deploying um, police officers to that area as a way of, uh, as a, as a way of, as a way of deterring cr- that crime from happening, right? Um, 
there, there's a company like that. It sells its services to um, uh, police agencies in all over America and around the world even. And Google is like really in love with that company. Um, and when that company was first getting off the ground, Google worked uh, very closely with it to um, to develop um, visualization technology, but also customize <coughs> some of its, I guess, uh, data centers and data processing um, uh, services that could help this company crunch numbers, crunch uh, past uh, crime patterns, so that they could predict future crime patterns. I mean, this is very much in line with, you know, with generally what computers are for, and what Google is in the, in the business of doing, which is predicting people's behavior. Um, and um, so it's not surprising that there's this giant overlap between the two. And they've got so much data on us now. I mean, this might be a bit of a basic question, but could you give us uh, and the listeners uh, a little outline of what sort of data big companies and the government have on us and what sort of techniques they can use to surveil us? I mean, can they listen to us through our phones or our TVs? And Orwellian seems a term that is often used to describe this, but of course in 1984, I remember it was one government spying on a quite unwilling and seemingly terrified population, whereas yeah. in our reality, it's like a great number of corporations are doing it, and we're all lining up enthusiastically to spend fortunes to help them do it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, yeah, Orwellian is like, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'd say like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good novel, but as like a blueprint for what, what the world that we live in today, I don't think it's very good, right? Because, first of all, you know, 1984 presupposes like that a kind of a Soviet-style dictatorship uh, is, is, you know, is, is what sort of won out, right? And is what controls the world. Whereas actually, in reality, you know, it's a kind of an American-style, um, you know, national security sort of uh, free market state that's, sort of, that, that, that's really the... The, the the power that controls the world in a way, right? Um, that's what won out, and of course the surveillance there is is, is of a different type, uh, uh, and people are a lot more scared of everything, whereas people are, are a lot more uh, just kind of open and, and and don't really care that they're sharing this information. And the kind of information that they can collect in us is that, you know you can just use your imagination, right? Um, I mean it's pretty much anything that you can think about, so. Um, there's a microphone. I mean, it depends, you know, where you draw the line. So there's the kind of the, if you trust these companies, right, that they that the, that the microphones and that the cameras that are built into just about every device now, right, um, are you know used only when we turn them on, uh, only when we use them, right? Um, you know, they collect information on our location. You know, so we have our cell phone in our pocket. Wherever we go, um, we are, you know, dragging essentially a little, a little plot, right, right behind with us on a, on a, on a, on a, on a Google map, right, and they're recording that information. Uh, so if you were born, you know, kids born today that 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 get cell phones, um, you know, as soon as they go to like middle school or whatever high school, I mean, from that from that point on in their life, you know, their their movements are being completely tracked, right? Um, but with that, it's not just your movement. You know, you can you, you you can watch people, um, you know, who your friends are, even if you don't um, associate with people online, right? If you are in the same physical space and you, both of you have cell phones in your pockets, right? I mean, it shows that you're together, right? I mean, it's, Google can, can very easily predict, you know, one-night stands. Or not predict, but can identify one-night stands or affairs, right? Uh -huh. Very easily. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I'm not sure if they're probably not doing it, but they could do that, and it could be an incredible blackmail engine if you think about it. Um, just if you think about what, how, what does an affair look like, let's say, right, on a map uh, in a person's life. So an affair would look like someone who's married, and Google knows if you're married or not, based on if you have, if you have Gmail or if you have, you know, um, credit cards that are, uh, that are connected, right, and have joint accounts with your wife or your spouse or your husband, um, so it knows that people, when people are married, but let's say someone goes to a bar and then goes to a, a location that they don't usually go to for the night with another person, and there's two people spend that night there and separate in the morning, never to see each other again. And both of them, let's say, go back to their prospective spouses, let's just say. 
right? That is, you know, you can just by watching people's movements, you can predict, you cannot predict, sorry, not predict, but you can observe things that, you know, they're trying to hide from, uh, obviously, people that are closest to them. Uh, but so this is a very, very, very simple kind of, you know, kind of crude example. But you can definitely look, find affairs. I mean, you can, um, you know, there was a recent article in New York Times about how Google knows when women um, go to abortion clinics, even when they hide it from everybody else, and then, and it serves them ads based on that. Because, wow. because again, like it's all about geolocation, right? And so if you go to a, an abortion clinic with your phone in your pocket, Google knows that, even if you try to hide it from anybody else, from everybody else, even if this, this private matter, this is between you and your healthcare provider, Google knows about it, even if you don't want to tell Google. So things like that, you know, things that are of a very sensitive nature, um, that are not, it's not even communications between you and your doctor on, in Gmail or something, right? I mean, this is something that you're just going about your world, thinking that you're not being watched, thinking that no one knows. But, but Google and Facebook and anybody who's running a location, uh, aware service on your phone knows where you're, where you're going, right? And then, but that also includes, um, you know, your telephone, uh, providers, right? Uh, your, um, your cell phone providers. They also know where you are. So there's just like, you know, a dozen companies. Um, that are tracking you as you go along your, about your day. And you can't really do anything about that. You can't really do anything about that unless you, unless you, um, you know, stop using a cell phone, essentially. Uh, or carry, or carry your cell phone constantly in a, in a Faraday, you know, like bag that, that prevents it from communicating with the external world. Or just turn, or only turn on your phone when you need to make a phone call, you know? But of course no one does that because what's the point of having a phone? What's the point of having one of these smart devices, if um, these smartphones, if that's what you do? And so, I mean, like, I mean, we could probably talk for like hours, you know, outlining all the different things, the information that um, all these companies can collect on you. But just, I, I mean, I think the the, the location-based stuff is so sort of unspoken, right? Uh, and just the amount of information you can just get from people's movements, you know, who they associate with, um, who their friends are. Um, how much time they spend with, 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 with people, with certain people, um, what their favorite places to, to, to spend their times are, uh, your interests, your everything, you know, your, um, and so it's, it's, um, just on that, in that dimension alone, it's incredible and it's totally unregulated. It's, to, no one thinks about this at all. Um, and it's, of course, completely involuntary, right? It's not like, you are entering things into Facebook and sharing things on Facebook. It's not like you're posting photos of, the, of, of, of yourself or your friends and the places you, you've been. It's not, it's not like you're even searching for anything on the Internet, right, or browsing the Internet. I mean, you're just sort of walking around the world, and you are this kind of, you know, to Google and to these other companies, you're, you're kind of that blip on the radar screen, right? And, and they, you know, they can click on you and, you know... The menus expand, the information expands, you know, who you are, where you've been, where you were, you know, when the last time was you were at that location, who you were with, all this stuff. It's pretty incredible. Um, not that, I don't, I mean, it's pretty incredible, uh, just the, the wealth of information that they have. And, uh, and it, what's more incredible is that how completely unregulated or unencumbered they are, right? There are no laws in America yeah. that restrict any of this stuff at all. Um, there are more laws probably on, you know, on, 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 you know, like banks and, and financial, uh, companies that, you know, based, based on your financial information, because there are actually specifically laws passed in America in the, in the seventies about, you know, privacy, um, and that's deal with some of the stuff, but like in terms of what Google can collect, um, not, not uh, covered by any regulation or any law in America. It's it's kind of incredible. Well, you know, this sort of takes me back to the question I was asking you earlier about privatization. I sort of feel like if they hadn't gone, you know, the private sector route, that uh, the Internet would have been, you know, much more regulated maybe than it is now, uh, and there would have been other sort of regulations.
regulations, and it would have been hard for um, this sort of um, narrative that's emerged of the internet being sort of like this this liberation for people and to help um, yes dissidents and all of that um, that you get into in the in the last part of your book. Um, which I guess you know uh, now is as as good a point uh, as it <laughs> to turn to that now. So um, in this part of your book, you get into some of your more um, controversial reporting, I guess, which I personally really admire, and I've referenced it in, in several of my reports, um, specifically about uh, the Tor Project um, and some of these, you know, celebrity uh, privacy advocates like uh, Jacob Applebaum and Edward Snowden, to name a few. So um, Tor, right, uh, is this web browser that's marketed as secret and safe or, or secure, you know, and has been really heavily mm-hmm. promoted, especially after, you know, um, Snowden became a, a, you know, more or less a, a household name in 2013. And um, as you point out in your book and in your past work at, at Pando, there is a lot more to Tor than meets the eye, and a lot of that has uh, is really in, in direct conflict with its public image. So um, based on your research, why is Tor not what it seems, and do you think some of its m- most prominent supporters have ulterior motives in promoting it? Well, yeah, I mean, Tor is, um, look, so uh, Tor is a uh, U.S. government, so the Tor project that makes the Tor browser, um, it is a government, you know, military contractor. Let's just put it, let's just start with that. So, um, uh, that's the first shocking thing when I, when I first started kind of digging into it and looking, looking at Tor, after uh, really became yes, like you said, a household name and began to be promoted by all these privacy activists, um, and even some large corporations like Facebook, um, as a way of you know protecting your privacy on, on the internet. Uh, well, the first thing you realize is that um, you know the Tor Project has these sort of uh, anarcho kind of radicals, anarchists, you know, anarcho capitalists, um, sort of working for it, and they see themselves as. Um, kind of these heroic figures who are fighting the U.S. government uh, and surveillance on the internet and surveillance state and surveillance apparatus that's, that's sort of taken over the internet um, by building and maintaining and, 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 and teaching people how to use this really, really secure uh, internet browsing system, which is supposed to an- an- anonymize your identity, right? Basically hide who you are on the internet while you're browsing it. And so there's this big sort of culture around it, and it's sort of now it's not as big anymore. But in the Edward, Edward Snowden years, it was really front and center. I mean, you know, you were talking about like cover stories for the Rolling Stone, really promoted, right? And you know, the first thing I found out was that all these radicals, you know, who are fighting the U.S. surveillance state, are actually being paid, are on the payroll of a military contractor called the Tor Project. The Tor Project is a nonprofit, but it's a nonprofit that gets most of its funding um, through government contracts. Government contracts from the State Department, uh, contracts from the Pentagon, specifically the U.S. Navy, and contracts from uh, what used to be known as the Broadcasting Board of Governors. Uh, now it's called the U.S. Agency for Global Media, and that's sort of the umbrella, uh, federal government umbrella that funds and oversees America's foreign broadcasting uh, propaganda operations like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia, and a bunch of other um, uh, radio stations that cover most of the Middle East, most of Latin America and South America, and most of um, Eastern Europe, Asia, Russia, and all the Central Asian republics you know, of the former Soviet Union. So, it's this, so the Tor Project gets most of its money from three government agencies, you know, and it's like, wait, that's weird. How is that possible? Why? And, you know, and so their story has a couple, two different, two different uh, parts. One of the parts is that the origins of the, of the Tor project were really not about protecting privacy, people's privacy as we think about it. It was actually designed to protect the privacy of spies while they used the internet. Not people, not activists, um, but spies, and it was supposed to solve a kind of a, a thorny problem for the government that, that that arose when the internet went global, and the U.S. government uh, agents like the FBI or the CIA wanted to use the internet to communicate or to do to do research or to uh, investigate people. But the problem is that because the internet has an open kind of address.
address system. So anyone who's um, like a web admin can see the traffic that's coming, you know, to their to their server and can see kind of where it's originating from, the origin, right? And so that posed a problem because if you let's say you're an FBI agent, um, you know, sitting at, sitting sitting and doing you know research on animal rights groups or something. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to infiltrate an animal rights group, uh, animal rights forum. You know, the admin, if they look at, you know, who you are, they can see that your IP address resolves to an FBI, you know, field office somewhere, right? Um, then there was another problem uh, po- that was posed for, let's say, agents that are out in the field and I want to dial home um, and want to, you know, check basically their, let's say, their, their, you know, uh, their, like, you know, their agency email address. Let's say you're a CIA agent sitting somewhere in the Middle East and you're undercover and you want to log in and check your messages, you can't just go into the CIA.gov, you know, uh, mail.cia.gov account because anybody who's watching the ISP traffic um, coming out of your hotel room or something, right, will see that you're trying to log on to a CIA website. Um, and so the idea was, how does the government create a system that can hide um, this activity? Uh, how can the government create a system that can separate sort of your, you know, uh, who you are and basically like where you're, where you're coming from when you're using the internet, right, and, and what you're trying to access. And so the Tor Project came out of that. So it was d- built by um, a team of uh, engineers, computer scientists at the uh, U.S. Uh, Navy, um, and um, it did that pretty well. And in, in the 2000s, it was sort of privatized and spun off um, into a nonprofit called the Tor Project, headed by one of the uh, f- former um, sort of uh, researchers who helped develop the technology. Um, his name is Roger Dingledine, and uh, until recently he was the head of, of, of the Tor Project. And so that's sort of the, the, the origin story of um, the Tor Project, where it came from. Uh, and then this, there's a second part of that story is that it it it, it became another agency took a very big interest in the Tor project, um, the, the Broadcasting Board of Governors, who uh, was at the time making this push of, of using the internet to beam anti-communist propaganda into China, and um, there was the beginning of this kind of war between China and America over the internet when the internet, America was we- trying to weaponize inter- the internet as a, as a way of de- to deliver propaganda right into China into beam into China and so so China began to block a lot of uh, sort of the the websites uh, that that um, uh, of American uh, government so like you know Radio Free Asia was publishing all these broadcasts and you know China said well actually well we're just going to block Radio Free Asia so that you know, people in China can't access this this content, and so the U.S. government began to look around for technologies that could circumvent those blocks, and the Tor Project became one of the more powerful ones, the more effective ones um, to do that. And so um, it became the, the Broadcasting Board of Governors, now known as the U.S. Agency for Global Media. They keep changing the damn name all the time, so it's almost impossible. It used to be, it's kind of ridiculous, and they give them these long names. Uh, that no one knows, and so I get really, it's like, it's kind of annoying. Uh, so, um, so, uh, it used to be known as the BBG, but now people inside, uh, the government call them, call it USAGM, USAGM, like, um, as US Agency for Global Media. Anyway, so they were, fu- they began funding the Tor Project in a big way, as a, as a way of, um, as a, as a tool of, uh, censorship circumvention. Right, as a, as a tool that basically was designed to prevent or, uh, governments from exercising control over I- internet, right, in their own domestic internet space. Well, the, the, so, to clarify, this is yeah. just for countries that are, you know, not aligned with the U.S., right? Where yes, but, but yeah, because well, that's okay. the, that's where the only problem problem exists, you know. And for so, them, yeah. the, yes, yeah. So, I mean, so for America, I mean, you don't have. Yes, exactly. I mean, in, in, um, you know, in Europe, which has its own, you know, um, sort of laws, American companies have to, like, comply with European laws and certain content is blocked, right? Let's say, like, you can't sell, like, Nazi paraphernalia in, in France, right? Um, but, I mean, the Tor Project could be used to circumvent that, you know, 
most and, and get that content by people in, in, in France. So it's like tricky. I mean, people still can use them to circumvent certain blocks that are thrown up, even if they're legal and even if the U.S. doesn't really oppose them, right? On a, on a on a sort of foreign policy level. Um, but yes, I mean, these were directed specifically at first at China, and then of course it's it spread to other countries. Um, and so, so the so the um, the Tor project kind of took on this dual life, you know, until it, it, it had this kind of dual life. And the first part of it, as far as like privacy activists and sort of uh, internet activists saw it, was less of a privacy technology, right, and more of a internet circumvention, censorship circumvention technology, right. So, but but it has this two dual sides to it. It's it it, it helps people circumvent blocks, um, right, but also protects their privacy. And so, the internet circumvention uh, was funded by kind of one agency. Um, um, and, you know, and, 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 and the two are, you know, kind of two sides of the same coin because by hiding your identity and where you're going, you can sort of you know, get around, also get around uh, censorship blocks on the internet. And so, and, you know, almost, if you look at the funding of the Tor project, um, almost all of it comes from, from the government. So, you know, the, the the Tor Project built up this uh, reputation as um, as a grassroots organization, right? That they would have these um, uh, fundraising drives, and they would try to collect money from people, and made a big show of this, of collecting money from a bunch of different donors. But actually, when you drill down and look at the financial, you realize that like anywhere from eighty-five to ninety-five percent of the money depending on the year, came from the U.S. government. And so and it came from the U.S. government for these two two purposes that I, that I just talked about. Right, okay. So um, turning really quickly to, to one of these most famous advocates of Tor, uh, who I mentioned earlier, Edward Snowden, um, you raised some points in your book, too, that, uh, that have crossed, the, crossed my mind and I'm sure the minds of some people that are, uh, have been watching what's happened in the years since he first came public. Um, these include things like, you know, how Snowden has promoted Tor really heavily, also Signal, which also has some similar uh, issues really, uh, that are similar to Tor's problems that, that you just uh, discussed. Um, also, you know, Snowden, um, when he did interviews after coming public, he was apparently unaware of this, um, you know, nexus between these private Silicon Valley monopolies and the government and said that only the government was doing wrong and the private companies he sort of yeah. treated as somewhat innocent, even though that collusion is really clear in a lot of the documents he released. And, you know... Um, and, and, and also the fact, going back to Tor, that um, some of the documents that stood in release showed that the NSA basically thought that Tor was a honey trap, but then he goes and he, he promotes it anyway. And, you know, also, um, you know, since your book came out, um, as, as everyone is probably aware by now, The Intercept, which was founded in part to publish uh, the Snowden documents, they, they recently closed their archive of those documents. And yes. uh, over five years, they published like well under 10% um, of all those files. Yes. You know, Snowden, who ostensibly, you know, gave up his freedom, he's now unable to return to the United States um, and, you know, has to live in exile forever, presumably. Um, he hasn't yeah. really complained about that happening and how his leaks were basically, you know, privatized and cut off. Um, aside yes. from, you know, a couple comments that he made as an aside in an interview with Vice, and he didn't really have any objections, <laughs> which, um, you know, seems kind of weird. I don't know. So uh, do you have any thoughts on on that as a whole? I mean, yeah, I think, look, I, I, I mean, I think Snowden, I see Snowden as a, as a kind of, as, as a tragic character uh, who is, you know, who's, um, who is trapped in his own ideologies and in his own alliances, Right, um, that, that that are political alliances. So the ideology part of it is that he, you know, if you if you actually look at you know what Snowden believes, he's you know he's a pretty hardcore libertarian who who believes that you know the government and politics, sort of mass politics, you know, social movements and politics are not really what changes things. Right? It's what it's technology that changes the world. It's the technology that can save the world. It's companies creating technology. You know engineering things so he, he doesn't believe in political solutions to political problems he, be, he believes in technological solutions to political problems and you know he makes that clear in a lot of different speeches that he gives because he does he makes a bit of money kind of has a career you know giving talks 
to business groups, to all sorts of groups, uh, remotely, right? And, and, and what's come out after sort of he's, he's been, uh, he's had to flee to Russia and is that, you know, this belief has really earnest and deep belief in the idea that only techno- technology can solve political problems. He says it over and over and over again. And so in a way, you know, his belief in the Tor, in Tor and in Signal, which is, you know, this encrypted chat app that is also funded by the Broadcasting Board of Governors, or now called the U.S. government, U.S. Agency for Global Media, um, is also was funded by that. So you have these two main privacy tools, the Signal and Tor, both funded by the U.S. government. Um, and so he, be- but he be- he believes it, you know. So so he's kind of trapped in this in this in this way. He he he's his whole worldview is based on that. And so what do you do if your worldview is is, is all about, you know, promoting tools like the Tor Project and tools like Signal. And yet, we, when, you're, when you're faced with information showing that, wait, well, there's something kind of deeply wrong here. If this, these tools are so dangerous to the U.S. government, if they're so dangerous to the service, its surveillance capabilities, why is, is, is the same government funding them and funding them lavishly and, in, 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 and actually increasing funding for these tools the more that they're used by the public to expose government secrets and to hide from the government, right? It doesn't make sense. Um, and so, but, but he's trapped in his own ideology in that way, so he can't really step outside of that because he believes that these tools are the thing that will solve um, the surveillance and that will fix surveillance. Political action, you know, limiting um, the surveillance capabilities of the United States or so the surveillance practices of the United States through political action, right, Actually, dismantling some of these programs, reducing the size of, of this national security state and the scope of it and its and its charter, right? These are not something that he believes in. He thinks that they're corrupt. That ultimately, a corruption will creep in to a political process, to this political process, and will actually, you know, maybe even end up doing more more harm than good. And so he believes in these tools, and so he's trapped, and he's and, and trapped into either advocating for them for their use or at least going silent when. It's become more clear that these tools are very much intertwined with the U.S. national security state. So that's the that's one part of it. The part of it is about him not complaining about, you know, the fact that the Intercept basically shut down his own archive, right? The the, the documents that he risked his liberty, right, his freedom to to rescue, to liberate from from the U.S. national security state and to, to share with the public have been basically privatized and shut down, right? Are not being shared with the public. The fact that it's the whole point of his of of his action, right? Um, and it's why he's sort of he's in exile today. He's being shut down. What the reason he I think he's not critical of this is because he has made an alliance with these with the people from the Intercept. You know, the, in a sense that they are his promoters, they are his champions, right? Um, who who does he have, you know, to advocate for his interests, right? Mm. In, in in America, very point. few people, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's like, what is he going to go against, Glenn Greenwald? You know, an extremely powerful, influential journalist and pundit who, you know, has his back and has, you know, has built his career on off of Edward Snowden, really, right? Um, and the leaks that he provided. Um, is he going to go against him? Is he going to burn this last bridge that he has um, to, 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 to at least some people in power and, and influence in America that can sort of advocate on his behalf? And, and so, of course he wouldn't. Um, of course, he wouldn't do that. Uh, he'd be isol- he'd isolate him e- even himself even further. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's kind of tragic in that sense uh, because he's really he, ha- he has very few options, not only ideologically but also politically, to maneuver. He really kind of has to go along with whatever you know whatever the intercept does yeah. and whatever the the principles that the intercept uh, feel like doing. I mean, I, I, I haven't been following this too too much because I've been doing other things, but I, I, I would imagine that he's also not extremely vocal on the Edward Assange issue, right? Well, to an extent, yeah. I mean, he has tweeted about it, but uh, it's not exhaustive, you know. I, I mean, he definitely has tweeted more about stuff going on in the EU with their Internet privacy laws yes. than he has about yes. Assange. I think that's... Yeah, and um, so, I mean, and so it's... And so, and, and we've seen with sort of Assange has been completely... Right, I mean, has has been completely um, thrown, off, thrown under the bus, cut yeah. off, cut off. But well, yeah, but by the very people who built their careers on, on on his leaks, right? So the whole he, you know, Assange, kind of built up this whole 
you know, for the lack of a better word, industry, um, this sort of privacy industry, this pre- this industry that's um, all about, you know, uh, encouraging leakers or protecting data, you know, and, uh, and, and encouraging, you know, the leaking of government secrets and uh, corporate secrets and this kind of privacy, internet, activism world, you know, it really erupted after after WikiLeaks. And a lot of people made their careers off of them, including a lot of people who were involved in The Intercept. And so, you know, the fact that all of that whole world turned on them, basically, right? Uh, well, I think Edward, also Edward to, to an extent, you know, Snowden got turned on too because um, it came out that when they decided to shut down the archive, uh, Snowden hadn't wasn't even notified until days later. They didn't involve him at all in that uh, yes. decision. So um, it, that definitely makes the situation, you know, for either Assange and yes. Snowden on both sides, you know, even more tragic and really, you know, um, should bring scrutiny at least to the, the journalists that sort of have, you know, um, the ability yeah. to speak up for these people and have become their advocates, you know, uh, the actions they're sort of taking behind the scenes. Um, I don't know. It's exactly. A, a troubling yeah. situation for sure. Well, look, I mean, it's like Edward Stone is really screwed because, you know, he's in Russia, right? Uh, already, you know, he, you know, he, you know, he's, you know, this American hero who fled to Russia, you know, and, and Russia is the, the center of all evil, uh, you know, as far as sort of American establishment is concerned. Um, and, um, you know, so he's there, he's there basically, you know, uh, but he has to be in the, stay in the good graces of, of the Russian government, you know, which is, you know, puts him in that position. He's also can't really, you know, take positions that are really, uh, I don't know, he, he really, he, he, he doesn't have a lot of room to maneuver because he's seen as like a, a pawn of the Russian government by a lot of people, you know, mm. um, and he's, and he's, and he's, and he's like, you know, like, <laughs> What does this word matter even anymore, right? I mean, like he can be—he's in a way, so, so he can be so easily discredited or shut, shut down or shut up, right? Because, um, just because of the nature of you know where he's at, and so it's like um, he really doesn't have a lot of allies, um, and not a lot of people, and the people who kind of maybe are his allies aren't really willing to stick their neck out for, for someone like him anymore, mm-hmm. um, yeah. because he is, you know, a liability, much you know, shortly sure. after RussiaGate, so it's. Well, talking about Russiagate, I mean, as a Russian-born American journalist and internet and cybersecurity expert and having worked for a long time in Russia, and you're perhaps in a somewhat unique position and actually having cared about Vladimir Putin or authoritarianism when he was still America's friend, and yet you've seen, we've all seen hostility towards Russians reach new levels in the U.S. Yes. recently with supposed, you know, Russian online interference in the elections uh, across Europe and in the U.S. and accusations of, uh, you know, Russian anchor babies and even James Clapper saying that Russians are genetically predisposed to lie and cheat. Um, what yes. have been the consequences of Russiagate for Russians in the U.S.? Well, I mean, I think there's widespread disillusionment uh, with uh, American liberal establishment, right? Um, because this Russiagate, is, it's, it's been a very confusing time for a lot of Russian immigrants. Um, and I think it's very difficult for them to voice really what's the problem or really to figure stuff out. I think a lot of people have just sort of pretended this is, 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 doesn't, isn't existing. You know, this doesn't exist. Um, and that, like, just just sort of unplug. And for a lot of others, it's pushed them, you know, to the right and towards, you know, the Trump camp, uh, even more so. Because, you know, strangely enough, it's like, you know, you turn on MSNBC. Well, it's not, or not strangely enough. You turn on MSNBC and you're being demonized, right? And you're being, you know, everything is being blamed on these sort of shadowy Russians, um, and you turn on Fox News, and, and that's not there, right? It, it's it's that kind of demonization based on your ethnic identity is is is, is non-existent. Of course, on Fox News, the, the other ethnicities are being demonized. Um, you know, uh, yeah. so so, uh, and those ethnicities might not be deem, aren't demon, being demonized as much, uh, maybe, uh, or to such an extent on MSNBC. Um, so it's it's so it's pushed people a lot to the yeah definitely to the Trump camp and to the Republican camp. Um, you know, and it's, I think it's, on some level, it's also, um, signal the end of, of this kind of naive, um, period in sort of the, the lives of, 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 of Soviet immigrants, because who I'm talking about now are actually Soviet immigrants, people who came to America mostly, um, you know, at the, at the, at the latter days of the, of the Soviet Union. Yeah, you Russia, but all over the place, etc. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but from Ukraine, from from Russia, <laughs> from the Baltic states, from 
you know, Central Asian states from all over the place. Um, so it's, you know, the, the, for, the former Soviet Union. So people have come here. It's been now, you know, almost 30 years for many people, maybe some, for some 40 years. And all this time they've been, they had the, 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 the luck to be in uh, this sort of privileged immigrant group. Um, they were not demonized like a lot of other immigrant groups. They were not seen as non-white um, or a threat to the American way of life uh, until until very very recently. So they were always seen as a privileged group in a way that you know the American state really um, did everything it could to facilitate uh, you know and ease immigration uh, out of the Soviet Union for mostly you know Jewish uh, Soviet Jews. Uh, and you know, did everything on the you know, sort of the American side to to soften the blow of immigration, right? Made made people eligible for uh, social benefits, uh, for welfare, for public housing, all these things. You know, there are special laws passed for that uh, that that made 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 Soviet immigrants sort of eligible for that, or, or other Im- immigrants are not necessarily eligible for. And so there's this, there's been this, and of course the reason for that is because Soviet Jews were seen as a weapon against the Soviet Union, you know, as, as it was a way of weakening the Soviet Union and forcing it to sort of release people and open its borders. Um, and so, you know, Soviet Jews were seen as kind of, were as kind of pawn in the, in, the, in the geopolitical fight between the Soviet Union and America. And so there were a protected group, a privileged group of immigrants here in, in the States. And that is kind of, well, to some degree, is at least rhetorically, and uh, what you see in it being being pumped out by um, mainstream news outlets and uh, TV networks, you know that is coming to an end. And now Russians are seen as a threat to the American way of life because Russians are seen almost as a, on a genetic on a genetic level as kind of linked to you know the master, you know ma- the queen Putin, you know, and the queen insect bug Putin who's sitting in the Kremlin, <laughs> you know, and and, and and it's potentially doing you know his bidding. And uh, and so it's been disconcerting and and, um, and disorienting for a lot of people. Um, at this point, of course, it's you know it's only the beginning of this. Um, so it's you know hard to say what the what, what the what the long range effects of this or where this will be headed. But um, clearly, there you know there's a, a renewed xenophobic panic in America. You know, and that it's it's targeting the Russian communities, but it's also targeting um, Chinese American communities uh, increasingly. And so, uh, you know, this panic isn't going away anytime soon. I think because uh, it's been very useful politically, and um, and so I think that in the short term, um, really, what it's done is pushed a lot of Russian immigrants or Soviet immigrants further to the right, away from uh, the Democratic Party, away from progressive politics. Uh, and towards, you know, Donald Trump, <laughs> uh, which is not surprising, I guess. Well, you know, it's interesting to view this in the context of American history because, you know, in, in, in especially in the early 20th century, there were all these sort of manufactured, you know, um, hysterias against immigrants. Yes. Um, and, you know, ostensibly, you know, at least what we, we were all taught in, in schools or whatever, you know, the U.S. is past that. Uh, it was supposed to be past, you know, that sort of uh, era, right? But what we've seen is um, a new one sort of start in a new and, and disturbing way. Um, so, so to yeah, follow up yeah. on, on what you were talking about, you also wrote an article recently that's related to this where you sort of describe Russiagate, you know, how it's been sort of treated as sort of like a, a huge failure of mainstream media, like Glenn Greenwald, who you were talking about earlier, talked about how this was like an abysmal failure um, for the mainstream media. But you argue that it's actually been a success, at least from this perspective of the people who really uh, started this whole Russiagate, not, not necessarily the talking heads on TV, but where all this really came from. Uh, could you expound on that uh, briefly? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Russia Gate and, and, and blaming Russia for, for swinging the election towards Donald Trump is really a, a great way of, of, of shifting away attention and shifting away blame from the Democratic Party and m- more broadly, um, kind of uh, the liberal political establishment in America. Uh, we're shifting attention away from them for losing to this freaking, you know, idiot <laughs> clown. And losing this election to this idiot clown, right? From from them and, and, and their policies that they've over, overseen for the, for the last, you know, forty years, fifty years, uh, and they've taken a part in, 
um, that have really brought America to a very sad state for a, for a lot of people who live in this country. It's a really tough place to, to live and to survive. Um, and, you know, basically blaming, you know, that and, 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 and pretending none of that exists, that, that there are no problems in America, you know, uh, and that actually the problem is a foreign government and an inscrutable foreign enemy that's sort of doing its voodoo through, you know, through the Internet, through, through you know, the shadowy ways of, 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 of influencing, you know, America, America and, and American ideas and, and American voters and, um, you know, basically helping Donald Trump win the election. So it's, it's blaming domestic political problems, and there are many domestic political problems. You know, there's problems no matter where you look, what part of society you look. Um, blaming it on a foreign enemy, you know, a totally <laughs> inflated threat. Um, obviously, there's, you know, there's geopolitical, um, you know, sort of, you know, geopolitical maneuvering and geopolitical conflict, right, that exists between pretty much any nation state, even friendly ones, um, on some level. But like, you know, the, the Russian threat has been inflated to such a degree and blamed for all America's problems. And so in that sense, yes, it's been successful because it's given, um, you know, uh, the media uh, and the political class cover, and it's given them something to talk about, and given some of them something to investigate, giving them something to focus their energies on, and to focus people's energies on, uh, because uh, that's very important, um, and to uh, to, and to, and to and to really redirect people's attention away from from their own culpability, um, and having and, and redirecting sort of. Uh, people's attention from that so they they don't have to reckon with it politically uh, and that the political class that brought basically Donald Trump to power uh, the Democratic Party and the liberal establishment that brought the, the, uh, Donald Trump to power is, it has allowed them to stay to keep staying in power right um, and so in that sense it's been very effective uh, very much so and so yeah I mean it's um, you know it's interesting like you know the Russiagate stuff is Basically, we've, we keep, you know, people think that, you know, racism or xenophobia is something that at least a lot of liberals think so. And, and even I, I have to say, you know, think it just it just exists somewhere in the back of my mind. You know, that racism and xenophobia kind of comes from the from the lower classes, you know, it comes from the d- down there and sort of boils up to the surface. And that, you know, racism, outright racism... Um, doesn't really exist in liberal culture like that, right? It can't yeah. be. I mean, it's, it really comes from like the Hicks, you know, the Red Staters, you know, the the truck, you know, the 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 guys with the truck nuts, you know, like th- that's where the racism is. It doesn't really, you know, hang out in Rachel Maddow's studio. Um, and and you know what Russia Gates showed so clearly, right? Because it took this foreign enemy. You know, Russia is like this, just this, such a such a faraway place, such a um, like a you know. Mo- it's so removed from America and from American politics, really, um, that no, no one's really racist against Russians in America, right? Not really. It's not like um, it's, it's of course very different with uh, Muslim Americans or Mexican Americans, right? I mean, there is a real sort of you know grassroots hatred um, based on religious and based on cultural uh, cultural history and political history, right? That that's very rooted in America. But Russia is like this thing, you know. It's you know, Russophobia, it, it, it doesn't really come from the bottom. It doesn't really exist, you know, on the streets, right? And so what's been interesting about watching Russiagate is how the xenophobic campaign really is top-driven, right? And how you can see it, how it originates, and how these things are whipped up, and how these things are generated. And they're generated through uh, national uh, cable networks, through you know, very, very uh, respectable newspapers, national newspapers. Um, and and it comes from the top of our um, political and media establishment, liberal political media establishment. And that's been kind of very interesting to watch from a, from a, almost like a, you know, sociological level because you, you, you see how racist campaigns and xenophobic campaigns are really top-driven, you know, and they're politically driven. And, of course, they're being top-driven. Um, and it's been interesting to see to see to, to see that, right? Because if you're talking about like, you know, Fox News's hatred of you know um, immigrants from from the South, um, or you know uh, Muslim Americans, 
you know, it's harder to see where that hatred is coming from in a way, right? Because it, it does exist in culture more broadly. And so Russia, that doesn't exist. And so it's been interesting to see it in this pure, almost laboratory state, right? Where you can yeah. see it develop and see it sort of start as just a, just a, just a top driven media campaign, nothing else and, and develop into something real. And we're still in the very earlier stages of that. And we'll see where it'll lead. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We've already taken an hour of your time, Yasha. I know uh, you had to go. So we want to thank you very much for being on the Minkcast. And hopefully we can uh, get you back on soon to talk about, uh, you know, uh, more revelations that come up. Oh, thanks. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay, <coughs> that was our interview with Russian-born writer and journalist Yasha Levine. His latest book is Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. You can follow him on Twitter at Yasha Levine and at yasha.substack.com. That was this week's Mintcast, the official podcast for Mintcast News. You can help us by sharing this podcast on social media or supporting us uh, at patreon.com slash News. For Whitney Webb and myself, until next time, stay fresh.